Have you ever wondered why some young people choose to end their lives? Ever wondered who they are and who they left behind? Have you ever wanted to hear their stories? Would you like answers to these questions and many more? Welcome to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu. Her mission is to shine light on these young people, create awareness for, and educate the world on youth suicide. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Dr. Lulu and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. Now, here's Dr. Lulu. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are. My name is Dr. Lulu, a.k.a. The Momatrician, coming at you live this morning with another fantastic, I know it's going to be interview. I have Dr. Christine B. L. Adams, MD. She's a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. And believe it or not, this particular interview was scheduled almost a year ago. But you know, when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And that's the kind of person that Dr. Christine is. So Dr. Christine, Thank you so much for gracing our pages today on Suicide Pages. We're going to be talking about, you know, my favorite topic, which is not a necessarily fun or palatable topic, but, you know, someone has to do it. So why not me? Thank God it's September, National Suicide Awareness Month. But if you know me, every single day should be National Suicide Awareness Day. And so, Dr. Christine, thank you so much for joining the family. Good morning. How are you, ma'am? Uh, good morning. I'm fine. Thank you so much. So I don't know what part of the world you're in. Are you, you said East Coast? I'm in the central part of Kentucky. Oh, Kentucky. But you have Eastern, but you have Eastern Standard Time? Eastern Time. Okay. So how is the weather over there? Is it good? It's sunny and pleasant. Yay. We're kind of cloudy here, which is good because this is Texas. And when the sun comes out, it's merciless when it comes out. So we take all the clouds we can get. So where do you want to start, ma'am? Where do you want to start this conversation? I usually have no form. I don't have any fancy questions I ask. We just can't. It's a conversation at the Starbucks, if you like. So maybe we should start where I first met you, which is I think you had written an article um, about wondering how it's possible to feel suicidal if a person does not have a mental illness. And um, I think I wrote you back that many people experience this without having a true mental illness, mental illnesses being schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, some obsessive compulsive disorders, um, and some depressions that go along with the dementia. So that leaves, mental illnesses are a very small part of, of illness, two to three percent. Emotional illnesses are the other things. So thank you so much for saying that because I, I'm not trying to pretend really honestly, I don't remember as much as I look like I should remember. So I wanted to just say thank you to you for reminding me of how we met. Indeed, I think I remember the article was depression was not my reason for being suicidal. It was more like bankruptcy and divorce and ostracization, and being a single mother and just trying to juggle all of these balls, lemons. And, and, right. and I believe it or not, now that we, we are going there, thank you again, because maybe not only because of you, but because of my own story, I started digging deeper into why people want to kill themselves. And I realized that, like you might, you're going to mention, mental illness is just one of the many slew of things. But sadly, people want to hold on to the low-hanging fruit, which is usually depression. But thank you so much for saying that. So you can go ahead and just, oh my God, just educate well, us. Well, my colleague, Homer B. Martin, and I have written a book called Living on Automatic. And in our book, 
we put all the discoveries that we made in working with people in long-term psychotherapy over a combined 80 years, 40 wow. for me and 40 for him. So we saw thousands of people in in-depth psychotherapy. And we discovered that there's a whole subset of emotional illnesses that we are all susceptible to. And that emotional illnesses come about mostly from relationship problems, not from any malfunction of the brain. So people can get suicidal from an emotional illness. Emotional illnesses are usually depression, anxiety, um, panic disorders, substance abuse, all of these things create emotional problems. But the predominant one that we found is some sort of relationship imbalance somewhere in their life, yes. usually with someone very close to them. To them yes. so you've got work conflict with your boss, you've got divorces, you've got conflict with problematic children that are in trouble or that are distressed. You've got conflict with your mother-in-law, your father, your brothers, your sisters, so on and so forth. Um, so this is the basis of most human distress. And it runs the whole gamut, the whole range from emotional upset to emotional dysfunction, all the way to emotional, frank emotional illnesses. And um, I, 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 you know, I want, I want to stop you right there just for a second. That's so much to unpack. I literally have been looking for you my whole life. I have, because we're speaking the same language, except that I'm Nigerian and you're not. I just had a TEDx talk a week and a half ago. And in that talk, I used the word betrayal because I'm a pediatrician and I talk about youth suicide, but more so I found that most children have been betrayed by the people they love. Bring it back to what you're saying, relationship problems. And then I went further to realize that apparently, um, I think it was 48% or 42% of most suicides are because of relationship disorders, in, 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 you know, which, which, which no one is talking about. I know it's, it's easier not, for drug companies to it's not involve every 40 minutes. There's an ad on TV. I checked it myself. Every 40 minutes, there's an ad on TV about an antidepressant. Every 40 minutes on any channel is, a, is, is to sell the, the, the medications. And so the rest of us, which have obviously we are fewer in number, no one wants to listen to us because wait, we cannot be right because wait, they, these people have the money to push their agenda. So thank you for the sake of everyone that's been touched by you, for the sake of everyone you are going to touch. Thank you for validating my thoughts because I didn't use emotional trauma, I did not use that. But I knew that children trust and they get betrayed. And I came from that angle. I said, listen, that trust has been broken. So it's the same thing. Relationship has been traumatized. Thank you so much. I have to say that before I forget. So go ahead. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I worked for 40 years doing psychotherapy only. I didn't give any medications to help people get better. I only used talk therapy in helping people understand, first of all, their childhood. What messages did they get as children? about how they were supposed to conduct relationships because that's the key to later adult problems. Because as it turns out, none of us is very good at teaching our children reasonable ways to conduct relationships. Mm -hmm. That's because our parents weren't taught reasonable ways, their parents weren't taught reasonable ways. So it goes back eons, centuries. Mm. Uh, in families. So um, we call this whole concept emotional conditioning. Mm. The way a child is emotionally shaped or conditioned by parents determines how they're going to grow up and conduct their relationships as adults. 
It's that a is shaping. so powerful. That is so, that is a one punch knockout. That is such a powerful phrase. I'm going to ask you to say it again for those at the back. Emotional conditioning. I am learning something new today. Thank you. That is so true. Indeed, it is emotional conditioning. A child who has a temper tantrum versus a child who doesn't grows up to become an adult who has a temper tantrum at the White House versus one right. who doesn't. Oh, my goodness. Thank and you. And I'll give you an example. Say you're in the grocery store and you see a child in the grocery cart and a parent with them, and the child decides to stand up in the grocery cart. Now, one type of parent will say, now you sit down right away and I mean it very emphatically. And the other parent will say, and that child sits down right away. And the other parent might say, now come on, you need to sit down. You know that you can hurt yourself doing that. And then start laughing. Ha ha ha, isn't he so cute standing up in the grocery cart? Those two children get completely different messages about how they're going to respond to people and how they're going to learn to conduct their relationships. So this is what emotional conditioning is. Parents teach children certain things like how to make your bed, how to feed the dog, but they also teach you the emotional part of how do you look at bed making or how do you look at feeding the dog? Is it something you feel happy about? Is it something you're mad as hell about? So they teach you the emotional component along with the instruction of how to do something or how to be in the world. So a parent can say to a child, you know, I really love you, you're a great kid but then they can actually treat them like they want them out of their sight. I love so that. That's so these example. are all examples of emotional conditioning. I love that. So basically what we're going, is this, is this bordering on that con concept of, the con concept of emotional intelligence that people are talking about now in, in the emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence. Well, not but, really. It's not really okay. It's okay. different. It's not related to those things. Okay. Um, those things have to do with how you understand your own emotions and how you understand other people's emotions. This is just all how you were shaped. You remember how Pavlov shaped his dogs? Exactly. To salivate when the handlers came in the room, even yeah. though they didn't have any food. Yes. Well, parents shape children the same way. Mm. And um this creates a lot of the problems because when we grow up, we develop just certain ways of responding to people and we lack balance and flexibility. We're like, you know, the phrase Johnny one note, the, the guy who can play only one note on the piano and he just yeah. plays it again and again and again, no matter what's going on. So what happens is children learn to respond say to uncle charlie in a certain way every time he comes over and then the same child will learn to respond to people that he thinks are like uncle charlie in the same way he responds to uncle charlie wow without really figuring out the nuances of what each person is like so it becomes an automatic response that happens unconsciously without you knowing what you're doing. And this is what emotional conditioning does to us, unfortunately. And this is what we talk about in our book, Living on Automatic. And then we also talk about how you get out of it, exactly. how you get out of being automatically conditioned. So first of all, the book is called Living on Automatic. Needless to say, I'm about to order, do you have I'm just going to ask, do you have the audio version? Because I've gotten lazier as I've gotten older now. And yes, there's an e-book. E there's no audio book. There's an e-book and a hardback version that's for sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target. And apparently it's an award-winning book. So, hey, y'all need to go out and get it. And I will be getting my copy and hopefully taking a picture and bragging about yeah, it. Yeah, leave me a review if you read it. 
I will. I will. The other thing I was going to ask you, of course, which is what we kind of touched on earlier on, and I just appreciate the fact that, you know, in Nigeria, we, we use proverbs a lot. The Igbo people, my, my tribe, we use proverbs. And we really, most Nigerians use proverbs a lot to, to, to speak to ourselves and to speak to our children. And so the proverb that comes to me now is the one that says, no matter how many new clothes you have, or that a child has, they can never have as many rags as their mother or as their parent. And that really means wisdom. That means that your parents have wisdom. And I feel like you are imparting so much wisdom on me now because before we started recording, we talked about just today's obvious low-hanging fruit of meditating everything, like literally just Here's some more Prozac and come back next week. And um, I'm, I'm happy that I'm, I'm in the minority here. That I always say, I don't give my patients medications, not because I can't. The last prescription I wrote for my patient was for birth control pills because she wanted to. It had nothing to do with, with, her, with the way she was feeling about the fact that her mom, yeah, her mom specifically, she said her mom, one day her mom was like, oh, I have I worked three jobs just to put the food on the table. And then she said, but mom, I just want to go and hang out with you. Mm. That was wow. all she wanted from us. You know, how she appreciated yeah. her mom working 10 jobs. If that's what she was so busy. But yeah. She just wanted an hour or two with her mother once a week yeah. for mom yeah. and daughter things. And so I would have figured that out if I didn't sit down with her to say, okay, tell me about it. Tell me every single thing. I have time. And so we miss those little things because if I was another doctor, I'll be here, take some of this, let's up your dose. Right. But the problem is not that she's acting this way because she wants her mother to see her and validate her. Go ahead. I always say medicines will cover up or relieve some of the symptoms but it never gets to the root of the problem. So you never find out why somebody is depressed or anxious or panicky unless you talk with them. The medications just, most, most people who come to see me on medication say, I feel numb. I don't feel depressed. I don't Thank feel you. happy. <laughs> I feel numb. And I say, well, well, first thing I suggest we do is we get you off of the medication. And some of them are very panicky and worried about that because yes. they've been on them so long. No, exactly. And they say, my gosh, why? Why do you want to get me off of this medicine? At least I don't feel as depressed. I feel just numb. And I said, because we need the real you to work with in therapy. Yes. I need to know what you are like. I need to know when you feel depressed, when you feel anxious, and what's going on at those times. And I can't help you to figure that out unless there's the real you in front of me the, and, and it's important that we that we have the real you for two other reasons and i say this because i had my i had my three babies without an epidural not because i didn't feel the pain but because i said to myself you know what the first one it was too late by the time they, they believed that I was in labor, because I said, listen, guys, I, this, this pain is real. They're like, oh, you're a first time mom. You go take a walk or whatever, come back. And I came back and my baby's head was crowned. Yeah. And then, so I said, you know what? If I did it with the first one, I'm going to do it with the others. Not because I didn't feel the pain, but because I said to myself, you know what? I think I can do it now. Yeah. It's important that we allow ourselves to sit in pain. We don't, nobody wants to sit in pain anymore. And so give me something real quick. Give me something real quick so I can put a quick fix. Yes. And so a few weeks ago, we we had a black male that was shot seven times by the police. And the very next day, or maybe that same day, the Black Panther died. And I literally, I was so sad. I cried for like two days. And I told Facebook, I said, Facebook, I'm not feeling good. I'm not, I'm not okay. Not because I'm suicidal. No, I'm just, I want to cry because I need to cry. And I told him, I said, sometimes it's okay to sit in the pain and let it, and, and feel it is, it's the right opposite of laughter is crying. And why should we hush one? 
And yeah. I said, sometimes if you don't let all of that pain come out, then you say, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? They snapped. Well, I wonder why. They never allow themselves to feel the pain. Not because pain is good, but pain is also, pain tells you that something is wrong. That's, that's what it says in medicine, right? Pain tells you that there's something somewhere. Now, last week, I heard that um, this, this little foil was put on Prozac because ever since the lockdown, he's been acting very weird in America. So I said to myself, look, I'm not going to put a four-year-old on Prozac, even if my life depended on it, because we all know that before the lockdown, he was a regular four-year-old doing everything that four-year-olds do. He doesn't suddenly develop a chemical imbalance that you're trying to justify when now he's at home 24-7. I don't know the trauma that he's seen in his four-year-old's eyes. Why, you know, so it's like, thank you so much. Oh my God, I love it. I write a, um, a blog for Psychology Today. It's also called Living on Automatic. And I'm getting ready to put up a new blog <clears throat> that talks about the importance in therapy of not doing Band-Aid treatment like medication or just CBT or just supportive therapy, but really digging deep into who you are, which means going back to your childhood which takes longer to help you figure out what the problem is now, but also, you know how we get vaccinations to inoculate us against diseases? Well, this, inoc this process inoculates people against anxieties and depressions in the future. Future, thank you. Yeah, so it's, it's very helpful in that people are not running back to therapy again and again because they've just had the Band-Aid approaches and the Band-Aid wore off. So yeah. that'll be in my next blog coming up on Psychology Today. I can't wait to read it because I'm, I'm subscribed to Psychology Today. I didn't know it was, I didn't, okay, I'm, I'm about to go look for you now. I'm going to be your number one internet stalker right now. I love Good. that. I love that. But here's another, another way to, to, another question that I have to ask. And, and, and of course, I know there will be some that will never agree that, that even if the tiniest percentage of people need medication. And, and I am a doctor and I know that. There'll ever be some times that you need some medicine. But my, my issue is being on Xanax for 30 years or being on Prozac for 26 years. At what point then are you going to, are you, are you ever really better then? If you got an antibiotic, if you got a, an infection, you don't take an antibiotic for the rest of your life. You take right. it as long as once you start getting better, you, you get off the medicine. Some medications are necessary just in a crisis. In a crisis mode, thank you. Just quickly on the medication and then off the medication. Sometimes I've used them with people that I know already well in therapy when they're in a crisis to prevent hospitalization. Exactly. That's the only time I've used them. And I say that to a small percentage of the time, yes, for crisis mode, yes. But if the medicine is potentially going to make you worse or if like I always go back to a child who is being bullied on the playground at school, who is acting out. I don't care the dose of an antidepressant. If you don't stop the bullying, which is what the problem is, the child is going to kill themselves and then you're going to blame the antidepressants or something else. The, the number of kids that kill themselves now are going up more because of cyberbullying. I mean, we have to just call a spade a spade and lack of understanding on our part as the village it takes to, to help raise and save the kids. Um, the, the cell phone is good. It has its good things. Technology has its good things. It also has the bad, but we have to learn how to balance the two of them and not um, just, oh my goodness, the, 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 the internet is bad. No, if, if, if not for the internet, we will not be here today talking to each other and having this wonderful conversation. So thank you for the work you're doing. And I'm definitely going to, going to put the, the book and the plug out thank there. You. <laughs> so, in, so how has your experience been with your own patients since the COVID-19 and the lockdown and all that? How, what, what's the experience been like? Well, I think a lot more people when I look at it from a relationship perspective and creating emotional 
illnesses. Um, when people are sequestered or locked down, mm -hmm. they can't pursue their relationships in the way that they're accustomed. And some people are very accustomed to giving support to other people. So they can't give support to the people they're used to supporting in being in contact with them. So they're frustrated. They may get depressed and start thinking they're not worth much because they can't be in their usual role. See, we found in doing psychotherapy that when people can't function in their usual way due to some sort of interpersonal stress, that that's when they become symptomatic. And we found that there's really two types of roles or personalities. One role is very good at giving support and the other role is very good at getting support. So if you have a person sequestered alone at home who's used to people doing a lot for them, visiting them a lot, buying their groceries for them, um, bringing over meals, um, you know, taking them out to a movie, and they can't do that during lockdown, then that's when that role or personality person gets depressed or anxious, when they can't get all the support they want from other people. So there's two groups of people I find in lockdown. The first can't give the support to the people that they want to in the way they want to, and the second can't receive it. And so this leads to high anxiety, some depression, and sometimes panic. A lot of people get panicked being alone at home. We are a very interpersonal, you know, human beings are very interpersonal with one another. And we're used to these sorts of supports, even if it's pathological, like with so many people it is, because so many people give too much and a lot of people receive too much. So even if it's pathological, we still crave it. And when we can't function in our usual role, we get symptomatic. So what do you say about that? Because that's where my, that's where my dilemma is. So to, to all of those, which is the, the, all 8 billion of us in the world, do we now all go on medication because we're all not able to function in our normal roles? What do you say? Because that's the, that's the thing. People are now going on medication we have a pandemic that we don't, I don't see it being over next year. This is just me. I don't know. I can't see the future. If I could, I would not be a doctor. I'll be something that makes more money. But um, so, but now that we have, we've seen ourselves. So what are you doing with your patients? Because it looks like many other people are giving medications to their patients. So what are you doing? Well, I do what I always have done. I sit and talk with people and I say, this is a good opportunity for you to learn about yourself. And we've, we've already brought out and learned about the fact that you tend to say, give too much to other people. And you can't get out of the house now and go and do your laundry for your grandmother and buy all of her groceries and um, take her to doctor's appointments. You can't do all that right now. So not, being able to be functioning in your role is making you distressed. But let's look at that role. Let's look at how reasonable is that for you to expect yourself to always be doing things for other people? Or is that the source of your anguish? So maybe, maybe you just need to try cutting back from the feeling of giving so much and the other thing people in that role do is they neglect themselves. They don't give to themselves. So maybe now is a good time for you to think of how can I give to me? What can I do for myself that I don't usually do, that I really enjoy, but I don't think of doing because I put everybody else first? Mm. Or in the situation where the person who's used to receiving a lot, I say to them, what can you do for yourself instead of relying on so many other people? You know, if your, your ex-boyfriend, uh, you know, uh, brings over um, magazines for you to look at and can't do that anymore, 
what could you do for yourself to replace that, that you rely so much on other people to think for you and do for you? You know, what things can you think of yourself? What around your home could you take care of? What could you just sit down and do yourself? Do you like to read? Do you like to listen to music? It, I know you're used to doing it with eight other people around, but maybe you could try some of those things on your own. And what this does for people is they begin to report back to me, oh my gosh, that makes me so confident to do some things for myself I never thought I could do. I always thought I had to rely on somebody else. Or the other person might say, oh, I feel so good about myself that I took some time out to do something for me. And see, these goes back to childhood and the two different roles that they learned. A person who gives too much learns as a child that they're always supposed to be thinking about other people and not think about themselves. Their parents will often tell them, you're being selfish if you think about yourself. Mm. And the other type of person grew up in childhood. Every time they said, eh, eh, as a baby, somebody ran over and took care of something for them, even if they didn't really need it. Oh, so they so got used to people doing for them and thinking for them that they never had to stand on their own two feet and think about things and solve problems on, the, on their own. So you can see how it comes forward from childhood to adulthood. I love that. And I know exactly which of those two people that I am. I know exactly which of those two people that I am. I just got off the phone with a, a high school classmate of mine. She was like, this surgery you just had is going to force you to finally just take a, just, just do nothing. Just don't help anybody. I was like, but I have a podcast. She said, okay, just the one. I said, just the one. That was yours. I said, just, she said, okay, just do just the one. And you need to just do nothing. And it's killing me. Like I've had like eight days of doing nothing. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely appreciate that. So of course that brings me to what I talk about, which is suicide. How does that play this your And I love it, your emotional conditioning. How does that play into your patients who may or may not be suicidal if you've had any? Well, when people are in their roles and we're all conditioned in one way or another is what we discovered and life is going along and the person used to giving can keep on giving and the person used to receiving goes on getting things from people. If something happens and the person can't be in their role anymore, like the COVID, lockdown or like the loss of a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a divorce then all of a sudden the seesaw in their life is out of balance they are called upon to look at the situation in a new way and they can't do it so they often the person used to giving too much if they lose a mate will feel oh my gosh i'm no good i couldn't i couldn't give that person all they wanted to satisfy them they left me they divorced me or they they gave up their relationship i must be a failure and the sense of failure and putting themselves down leads to suicidal feelings mm. and for the other role person they feel, oh my gosh, the person has left me and, and here I am expected to do things for myself. They did a lot of things for me and I can't, I can't bring myself to do it. And I'm angry. I'm angry at them for leaving me. And so quite often those role people will think of suicide as a way to punish the person that left them. I'm not saying this is logical thinking. I'm just course, saying. Yeah, but there's nothing about suicide that is in yeah. all honesty that is logical. And I know because right. I've been suicidal and I was, I was the first person you described. I, I, I just became divorced. I mean, it wasn't like the next day, but I'm like, wait, oh my God, everybody, well, yeah. you know, you get married to stay married. And then uh, I'm now this bad person because I couldn't 
the, my marriage and never mind the fact that I was dying in the marriage because of the marriage. Right. Which been there. A failure because never mind that I was in a bad domestic abuse environment, but still I'm like, wait, I'm more focused on the fact that wait, I, my marriage is over. Everyone is going to think about me as a divorced woman and all the other things is just, oh, and then I have to, to somehow raise these three kids by myself because of course I'm Nigerian and his own family was like cut, just completely just severed ties. I'm like, all of these things and I have to go to work every day and see patients and act like all is well because all has to be well, you know? You're expecting a lot of, your of yourself. So, so then I was like, you know what, I'm out of here because I can't do this anymore. And yeah. so that's why I was saying, before that, I was a happy-go-lucky person. Today, I'm a happy-go-lucky person. I, was, I never ever had the diagnosis of depression, but no one asked me where, what, what happened, what led you to this point? No, they just said, here's some medicine, be happy, see you next month. And that's what I did, and that's what I will fight till I die because I got worse. I was, I was the person you described. I was driving up the highway, 85 miles an hour, I had no seat belts on, the rooftop of my convertible was down. I was looking for an opening to get the fuck out of here because I was done. That's it. So that numbness that you described, I just experienced it again last week when they gave me some narco and Valium combination for the pain oh. for my surgery. I'm like, I'm like, wait, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know if, I don't know if I'm feeling. I, I just, I, I just, I threw it in, I threw it in the big, like, far away from me. And I said, I'm going to take Tylenol extra strength and I'm going to deal with the pain. Yeah. Because like I said at the beginning, sometimes when you're in pain, that tells you, okay, maybe you shouldn't be doing this versus I'm just numb. I told my wife, I said, I don't, I don't know who I am. And I, I said those exact words to her. I said, I didn't use numb. I said, I, I don't know who I, I said, the medicine is making me feel like, I don't know who, who that You're associated. Yeah. You're associated. You. Yeah. Well, that that description that you give, that you gave about that episode you were going through, is what emotion that was due to your emotional conditioning. That's not due to any mental illness. That's not due to any um, biological thing in your brain. That's due to the conditioning you got as a child that made you grow up and feel ultra responsible for everything around you. Yes, I'm the first of six kids so I and if you can't manage everything you might as well do away with yourself yes as if it's a black white alternative when of course it's not there's a exactly. whole lot of different all, other the, sense, you know, all the sense because I was the first of six kids in an African family you know I, it, I mean I'm just I'm, we, we have a patriarchal society across the, the globe and so you do this, you're a wife, and your, your job is to be submissive, and how dare you, you know, have a different thought process than whatever, you know, all of that. And I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to be all of this, I'm supposed to be this shiny example of a daughter, and I'm not, so therefore, boom. I never knew this, but I knew one thing for sure. I, I might have had a depressive crisis, but I knew that I did not have a clinical, um, what they use, they always toss out the word chemical imbalance in my brain. I knew I didn't. I knew it because before all of that happened that within the space of three months, I had nothing. I was okay. And then within three months, I get divorced. I file bankruptcy. I'm a single mother. I'm in the military. I'm a commander. Are you kidding me? Wow. And then, and then someone, someone had the nerve to say, well, all your signs definitely are signs of clinical depression. I said, well, you know what? You take the medicine because I'm not going to take it because I know that medicine wasn't going to fix it. When I sat back and I said, wait, what is happening? Let me write all these things down. Which of these can I fix now? And let me start taking them one at a time. And that's when I got better. Yeah. And I yeah. said, you know what? I can help other people if they will allow themselves. Like you said, people get anxious, but I've been on my medications this whole time. Are you sure I shouldn't be on my medications? <laughs> This is what I do with my patients. I help them realize that, you know, this is the way you were created by your parents. But instead of just doing things one way, you have, you really have more options than you see. It's not a black, the world is not black and white. You don't just have choice A or choice B, but you have a whole host of things you can do. 
And a lot of my patients say, you know, it's like taking, it's like being a horse my whole life with blinders on. And you help me take away the blinders to see that there's a more reasonable way to be because the antidote to emotional conditioning is thinking. If you can think about your situation, then you can find more reasonable ways of doing things rather than just responding automatically the way you were raised. So that's what we put in our book, Living on Automatic, how you institute thinking about things. And I give tons of, of uh, case examples, lots of case examples in the book about how to do this with children and with spouses and um, people abusing substances that you love. So there's a, there's a lot in there about how to do that. And people often say to me, but long-term psychotherapy takes so long. And I say, have you ever gotten braces on your teeth? <laughs> they say, yeah. I said, well, did you change your teeth overnight or did it take a couple of years? Oh, it took a couple of years. And I said, well, psychotherapy is the same way. It's not a quick fix. We're not going to do something overnight. It's going to take a few years. But when we get done, you are going to be a far stronger, capable person than you ever were. And you're not going to have these episodes going forward in your life. Because and they're now like, you understand, really? Yes, now you understand the making of you, of who you are. But right. I, I wanted to write that quote down, the antidote of emotional... The antidote to emotional conditioning is thinking. thinking. I'm glad you said that because what I like to say is the antidote of hopelessness is helpfulness. And let me let me say it this way: my patients call me, "Oh my God, oh, oh something." My mom and she just called me so pissed at my dad and so mad. I said, and I said, okay, okay. Before you call, before we talk in an hour, to call five of your friends and ask them how can you make their day better. And by the third call, they're like, "Oh, I'm already feeling better, really," because now you're taking all of that and trying to help somebody else feel better. So that's what I do with my patients, but I love this. And, and it's also part of thinking about what can I do? What can I do? So that's a thinking process that comes in there to make somebody feel better. I love that. I love that so much. Wow. So the book is called Living on Automatic. The blog is also Living on Automatic. Psychology Today, yeah. Psychology Today, okay, very good. Wow, it's amazing. So we have come to the part of the podcast where I ask if you have, first of all, where can the people find you? But second of all, if you have any parting words, any words of wisdom, which basically is all you've been giving us all day, but any extra words of wisdom, if there's any extra thing you want to add? So well, people can find me on my website and you can email me. I have a comment section. You can write me what your question is or your comment. And it's drchristineadams.com. And doctor is spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R. And Christine is C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E. Drchristineadams.com. <coughs> And let me think for parting words, I would say um, a lot of people have thought for a long time that treating personality problems is a loser, that it's very hard to do, that short of 20 or 25 years of therapy, nobody can change their personality. And a lot of people have felt very hopeless because of believing I can't change who I am. And Dr. Martin and I found that was a bunch of hooey. You can change who you are. You can change, make changes in your personality. You're not going to completely change your personality type, but you can make enough changes that the quality of your life vastly improves and the risk of having substance abuse and emotional illnesses goes way, way down with the type of deconditioning psychotherapy that we used. 
And when I have spoken to groups of people before, they have come up to me afterwards and say, that is so uplifting. I never knew that a personality could be changed. That gives all of us as parents and as adults new hope, both for our children and for us. Because I talk a lot to groups of parents about how to raise emotionally healthy children. And I have a video on YouTube about how to raise emotionally healthy children. And so I think it's important for people to know that your personality, even though you learned it at an early age, you can make some changes in it to improve the quality of your life. That is amazing. I think, I think I've, I've, probably have thought that before. I know people can change. I know people usually are reactive to their environments. And so I know, and I remember from, you know, just from watching The Sound of Music, you know, Flora and Maria was just not made for the Abbey. But once she became a, a governess, she was made for the governess, uh, to be a governess. Oh, is that, was that what she was, a governess? Is that what she was? Yeah, I think so. A governess, I think that's what they called it. But anyway, it's just saying that basically your personality can be adjusted if you just put forth the effort. And I love the, the relevance, to, the reference to braces, because when I wore my braces, I was like two and a half years. Are you kidding me? Like, if it felt like forever. Well, I haven't had braces in five years. Yeah. But that, at that moment, when the two and a half years was pronounced, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to look like this for two and a half years. Yeah. And that was, that was five years ago. So thank you for just enlightening me today. I know for one that I, I learned a lot. I'm going to post this. I'm going to skip everybody that I had already pre-planned. I'm going to post this interview on Tuesday because it's the last Tuesday of the month because it's still, you can still at least get something out of it as far as the month of September being suicide awareness month. Go ahead. Let me just also say for people that don't want to visit the website, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Okay. And I can be reached at all of those. Well, thank you so much. This has been a very enjoyable experience. You ask wonderful questions, and I hope that we helped a lot of people to kind of open their eyes as to things that are possible with getting out of the mire of emotional illness and suicidality that they didn't think was possible. So I hope we've given some people hope. I think we did. I think we did. Yesterday in my little post, I, I said, you know, of all the things, like just, be, just before you think it's just a pill, try gardening, try knitting, try sewing, try baking, learn a new skill. I don't know. My wife got rollerblades at 51. She fell a couple of times, but guess what? She gets up every time and gets back on those rollerblades. That's not for me, okay? I'm not rollerblading for nobody, but I'm <laughs> gonna learn how to swim because I'm afraid of, you know, the water. So that's a new challenge. So just challenge yourself. Think of something new that you could do. The, anti, the, the, um, the ultimate, I know I said, I say helplessness, but the, um, of hopelessness it's helpfulness, but it's also setting a goal. Once you set a goal, like, okay, this is what I want to do. All of a sudden she started doing, um, she makes t-shirts and like puts like little brand t-shirts or whatever. I had one quote from my TEDx talk that was like, the suicide attempt is never a cry for attention, it's always a cry for help. She put that on a t-shirt for me, right? And I wore it. And now she's gotten like 30 people place an order for that t-shirt. She never knew she could even like be a t-shirt maker. It makes, it, it does, help to know that no matter what age you are, you can always do something else and you can change that trajectory that you thought that was the only one you could be on. Go ahead. Let me just add one more thing. A lot of people say to me, well, what books do you suggest I read or what podcasts to listen to or, or um, you know, what YouTube videos? And I say, really, I don't recommend any of those. What I recommend is an intense introspective study of yourself so yeah, i knew you're gonna say that because people don't listen to advice anyway <laughs> we discovered you they have to come at it themselves and in our book living on automatic we describe how you do this and you very often need the help of a good therapist to complete the job of how do you 
look and dissect yourself to figure out how you are because that's the most important job you have as you go through life is to understand yourself you could you know what we could not end on a better note that to me is point blank period right there the most important person you need to get to know is yourself and i and i did i, I gave a, an interview earlier this morning and i said three things you know even when god was creating the world he said that he saw that his work was good so you know you're good already god even he said it that's number one then he said let's make a partner for the man who we already made in our image and likeness because he wanted us to know that we do need each other you know we you know whether it's a, a wife or a co-worker or a friend whatever we like you said at the beginning humans by nature need other humans we are made for each other and then the third thing that god did was he rested on the sabbath he said today is the day i'm going to take a break so if you allow yourself and i know that because i used to teach bible study when i was a younger version of me you can call a timeout. you can do that introspection you can say for me today i don't feel like doing anything like bruno mars said in his song today i just don't feel like doing anything and that's okay too so my name is dr lulu aka the momatrician i hope you guys enjoyed this as much as i did because i swear to god i have a brand new godmother and her name is dr christine bl adams and i'm going to see you all next week with another beautiful interview or not either way keep on keeping on and before you hurt yourself take a minute and ask is it worth it? I'll see you guys next week. Peace out.